0: Bible's got you tied in knots if you're burdened with religious thoughts. Come grab a drink and join the choir. It's Heretic Happy Hour. Yee-haw! Howdy, partners! It's time for the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. I'm Keith Giles. I'm one of your three uh, co-hosts here. I'm the author of many books, including The one coming out in November, uh, November 9th, actually my birthday, Jesus undefeated condemning the false doctrine of eternal torment, uh, with a, with a forward by this guy. Um, what was his name? Brad, Brad Jerzak. Yeah. Brad Jerzak. Um, anyway, so at the beginning, you notice I had a little little bit of a Texas accent. I recently moved back to El Paso, Texas. In fact, recently as in like two days ago. And, um, so yeah, I, I guess I have to, I got to fight my uh Texas accent coming back. But anyway, I'm joined by my other two amazing co-hosts, Matt and Jamal. Guys, introduce yourselves. Say hi.
1: Hi friends. My name's Jamal. It's really good to be back on the heretic happy hour podcast and I will say a co- you know, I have these every day I read some affirmations about my identity and I'll just I'll just share a couple just so you get to know who I am a little bit. I am a great lover and I am d- deeply loved. I'm a powerful king and I'm a peaceful warrior and that's me. I've written a book called living for a living and um, it's
2: great to be back with you guys. And I'm Matt and I too am a, am a great lover. Um, but yeah, I've got uh, when, when is this show coming out? I got a book just coming out, just came out on the 10th. That was my daughter's birthday and uh, it's called devoted as fuck. So please all you beautiful fuckers. You pick that up as soon as possible, or it makes a great uh, Christmas gift, mm. a great coffee table book too. Just sit that on your coffee table, and when your in-laws come over, just make sure it's open. <laughs> That's my recommendation. Oh.
1: Yes, yes. Hey.
0: Oh. Hey. You know what? By by the way, uh, uh, I dropped the ball out there, guys. I'm supposed. I was, oh! should have said at the beginning that. By the way, everybody, we're doing a brand new series in our podcast. Uh, we're doing a Culture War series, and uh, we're already one or two into it now. So um, yeah, just so you know that we that's what we're going to be talking about for the next couple of episodes. Um, I'm just personally excited because eventually that means we're going to get around to aliens. Now, not in this episode, but yes. eventually, eventually we are going to get around to aliens and I cannot wait for that one mm. anyway, but that's a sneak peek.
1: Yes. Yes. And um, this is a great time to, uh, to uh, announce again, the announcement, the, announce, the uh, re the announcement, the earlier announcement we had earlier on the to podcast.
0: Re-announce the, yeah.
1: Yes, that we have a potline. Oh, no, a pot
0: line. <laughs> yes, no, no, that's finally. <laughs> no, no, Matt has a potline.
1: Yes. I'm sorry. I was channeling Matt for a second. Um, I, I, we have a hotline, and the number to this hotline is 240 343 7379. Again, that's 240 343 7379. Call 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And you could leave a voicemail. You can leave a text. And actually, we have a text um, that came into the hotline this week. So let's cue that up. Okay. This quote, For those existing in flesh cannot be pleasing to God. But you are not in flesh, but rather in spirit, since God's spirit dwells in you. But if one does not have the spirit of the anointed, this one is not his. Unquote. Romans chapter eight, the New Testament, a translation by David Bentley Hart. Hi there. I'm reading Richard Rohr's Universal Christ, and I'm loving it. I am struggling with the text above and whether that contradicts Richard's belief that the Christ is present in all people and things. Paul distinguishes those between those who have the spirit and those who don't. Perhaps a question for Richard directly, but wondering about your take. Thanks. Gary Goodlow. Unquote. Wow. That is my probably one of my favorite favorite texts that have come into the hotline because I love this
2: subject. So good. Yeah. So what are your thoughts, Jamal?
1: <clears throat> Man, he just opened a Pandora's box. Well, interesting that we're going to that this text came in. I think first of all, no accidents. I don't believe in accidents or coincidences. It's really interesting that this text came in the uh, to the hotline because we interviewed we're going to get into I don't, I don't know if I should give this away but well let's just do that okay we'll just the heretic of the week that we're going to get into it happens to be somebody I won't mention his name we'll get into that in a minute. <clears throat> happens to be somebody who actually differs in with some regard to Richard Rohr in the claims he makes in the universal Christ and um, but this is one area in which um, I don't know that our our heretic of the week really gets into the, the specifics of in this area. But I do, I think it's an important distinction because here's what, what Richard Brewer, the point he makes in this, um, in this assertion that everything is the manifestation of the Christ. Uh, everything is the literally everything is the incarnation of the Christ, um, which is a bold statement um, that does take him out of the re- realm of what's considered Orthodox Christianity. <laughs> And I think Paul here and when Paul makes a statement that certain people have the spirit of God and certain people don't, um, it's probably not the greatest translation. It's like, first of all, what did Paul mean by it? I think a couple of things could be true. Paul could have meant, pa- Paul could have been sectarian like most Christians are and just said, you have the spirit. You don't. You have the spirit. You don't. You're awake. You're not. You're in Christ. You're not. That kind of thing. I I mean, if he did that, I would just say. Yeah, his his Paul's understanding of reality is is less developed than Richard Rohr. So I have to Richard Rohr as being a more enlightened thinker there. But I'm not sure Paul's saying that, but
2: the translation's
1: really bad. So da- wait, da- David-,
2: David Bentley's heart translation's really bad? No, Paul. Oh. Uh, I mean, oh.
1: David Bentley Hart could be quoting Paul.
2: Well correct? that's what he yeah, that I mean that's yeah. what he's doing. Yeah, but yeah, what yeah. I would
1: say is Paul's wording is he's really not communicating. Um, maybe what he's trying to get at. I think I think words fall short. A lot of times Paul has, Paul has done this several times in his writings where he's saying something and the, the word he uses is probably a poor choice, like flesh, really poor choice um, to use that, to talk about the flesh as being something. It, it's really more, um, that's really kind of the error of of uh, Gnostics, where the flesh was lower, and so the, this idea of talking about the flesh in a lower form is probably not the right word that Paul's trying to get at here. But anyway, it's it's really a, so this idea. I would say people who there are some people who are not awake to the Spirit of God, and therefore don't don't really live by influence. But um, if that's what Paul's saying, I would agree with Paul. But I would never agree with Paul if Paul is saying that certain people do not have the Spirit of God. I would not agree with that because. Um, I don't think that's um, really in line with Paul's full revelation that he he states in other places in his writings. So that's just my thoughts. Yeah.
2: Well, I'll say that uh, real quick on Paul and talking about the flesh. I mean, there's there's such a specific context when you're talking about this. Um, Paul is dealing uh, with a lot of rhetoric and dealing with people who are living in their time and place and context. So when he talks to the people in Corinth or when he talks to people in Galatia or Rome, um there's there's a certain context i i from from what i understand is that paul is not talking about flesh and spirit in a gnostic sense i think he's he's talking about it more in a uh, these are powers that are pre- that present themselves in the world and he's trying to distinguish between between the two not necessarily making like a ontological claim about um certain people being certain uh, connected in a certain way to god or christ and certain people not i just think he's he's using that language because it's the language that was already sort of going around at the time
0: yeah does that make Uh, sense i I wanted to so uh, yeah my my take on this would be two things one you guys know i am a david bentley Hart uh, fanatic. I love, 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 love David Bentley Hart. I love that. I love his new Testament and Wendy and I've been reading it every night ever since I got it, um, uh, before we go to sleep at night. And so uh, I'm loving it, but I got to say at the same time, um, I'm frequently disappointed in some of the, his uh, choices of the translation. So, because there are certain passages that I'm aware of where the English translation suffers and I'm expecting often for him to correct those things. And I'm disappointed quite often that he doesn't correct some, some things. But what I'm noticing is uh, that the choices David Bentley Hart is making in his New Testament translation, um, are more, in other words, he does have an agenda. And there, in fact, he is probably more concerned about correcting a very reformed, um, Calvinistic, uh, perspective that has crept into um, most English translations. And that's really the main thing he's trying to correct um, in his translation. And so because of that, he's not focused on other passages that tend to have more misogynistic or patriarchal or those kinds of things where, again, where I would look to him to say, oh, he he totally knows this Greek here. He could totally go in here and and, and pull something out and correct a misunderstanding. And sometimes he does. But well, as I said, sometimes he doesn't, and I'm disappointed in that. So that's just—I want to just say that off the bat. But I think in this particular case, um, this this translation here from Romans eight, um, I think it's also possible, kind of like what you were saying, Matt. Um, the, there's a there's a problem really with the book of Romans in the sense that you cannot just grab a little verse or two from anywhere in Romans and say. Oh there see Paul said that Paul Paul believes that because that was written by Paul in Romans because there's this thing called prosopopeia which is where often Paul will say something yes he wrote those words in his uh, epistle but he's t- sometimes what he's doing is framing an argument and so he'll quote something that he doesn't believe and then immediately after that he will refute it so that's, I would also caution, if you're not aware of that, that's what's going on in Romans. You can get tripped up by something like that. We could say, oh, well, look, Paul says here, you know, this whole thing about existing in the flesh and versus the spirit. Um, now I'm not sure exactly that is what's going on in this passage, Romans eight. Um, and I, I think it's probably more likely like what, what you're saying, Matt, that, um, that, because yeah, taken at face value, that would be a very Gnostic statement. And, paul wasn 't a gnostic, right so uh, I think what 's really going on is um, he's yeah he's contrasting someone who is intentionally living uh their life aware of their connection with Christ and, and the spirit versus someone who is oblivious to it and is living totally from the desires of the flesh, which would be you know just living in a, in a very self centered selfish way, following their lusts and those kind of things and, yeah. And I think that's really all he's yeah. trying to say. In other words, I don't think this is a statement that is any in any way attempting to refute the idea of the universal Christ. I, I don't think that's what he's saying at all.
2: Right, and 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 I will uh, clarify one thing. No, he's not doing the prosopopean here or any diatribe or any of that. Ra- Paul's, um, from what I understand from Doug Campbell, the New Testament scholar, um, Paul is arguing back and forth in Romans one through four and nine through eleven. Okay. And Paul's, Paul's real, real theological meat is five through eight. Got it. And then, and then, and then some, some of the end of 11, when that's, he concludes that whole Jacob, I have loved, Esau, I've hated this whole Calvin, you know, the Calvinistic bullshit in, in Romans nine, that they always point to the wrath of God and all that good stuff. That's really an argument that crescendos in, in chapter 11. So just. That's, that's my
0: understanding. Okay. No, thank you. That, that helps a lot. And yeah. Yeah. So I, so I think Matt, at least you and I think that, uh, or agree that 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 particular passage is pulled out of Romans eight here is really more about contrasting someone who's intentionally living in the spirit in Christ versus someone who is oblivious to that and is living more just out of their own lusts, self-centeredness. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I'd say that, 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 yeah, that's much more likely than some sort of claim that people are literally yeah, uh, Christ is not in them, or God's not in them, just because yeah. they live that way.
1: And I think that was my assertion as well. That
2: yeah, yeah, Paul
1: is, is actually making. It's probably not the best use of words there. Um, yeah, because yeah. the whole gist of Paul's revelation is that all are in Christ, yeah. and Christ is in all. I mean, that's the essence of his revelation, and he's right. very clear about that in other places. So, even even that is all, and all have fallen in Adam. All are made alive in Christ. So this is not. You know, again, it's you have to you have to understand that language falls short. But if you get the heart of Paul's revelation, then you realize, yeah. like, okay, I yeah, this is yeah. yeah. That's, that's,
2: we could go, we could go on this conversation for a while, I feel, but we got to move on and get to that heretic of the week that Jamal <laughs> mentioned earlier. It's the heretic of the
3: week. Hi, I'm Brad Jurasek, and I'm a heretic.
2: Hi, Hi Brad. Brad. <laughs> Well, well, Brad, it's it's been uh, it's been almost two years, but we've been down this road before, and so welcome back, my friend.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: Yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Um, we, we we typically uh, have three questions we ask our guests, but since this is your return episode, uh, we're not going to do that exactly. But for the listeners who haven't listened to, I think it's episode six. You were our first heretic of the week, so you were our first interview. Um, if you could just maybe recap briefly why some people consider you a heretic
3: well some people think i'm a heretic because i believe god speaks today so if you don't believe in that that's a problem i also don't believe in eternal conscious torment in a lake of fire forever and ever and so some people are alarmed by that and i no longer believe that god was punishing his son on the cross as the way of redemption so i'm a heretic for that and it goes on and on Uh, This week, it'll be that I think everyone's included in what Christ has done. And that should be obvious and orthodox, but no, some people think that's heresy too.
2: Yeah, um, those are all pretty much standard for a lot of people. But um, uh, could you maybe describe the difference between, let's say, the universalism of someone like Tom Talbot or David Bentley Hart and what you when you say all are included. And because I personally have kind of been always a little confused by maybe some of those differences, if if there are many differences.
3: There actually aren't that many differences. Here's the issue as I see it. Um, the word universalism is the problem. And first of all, that it's an ism at all sure. there's something dogmatic about it that I don't think I'd want to say. But also when people hear the word universalism, the most common usage of that word excludes certain things that I think are absolutely essential to the gospel. The good news about Talbot and Hart is they haven't excluded those things. So just to defend those <clears throat> guys for a moment. sure. Um, Talbot and Hart believe that sin is a real problem that needs to be solved. They believe that it required the incarnation of Jesus Christ to solve it. They see the absolute importance of the cross and the resurrection of Christ as the means by which salvation comes. They do believe in a forthcoming judgment followed by ultimate redemption through a willing response to Jesus. So yes, sin matters. Jesus matters. The cross matters. The resurrection matters. Judgment is real. And you do need to respond. They just also happen to believe that the Bible foresees that happening. But when other people hear The word universalism, both proponents and opponents tend to think that none of those things matter. So I'm like, well, if those things do matter, but people think that you don't mean that, maybe it's not a helpful word. Mm -hmm. So when I've just read, you know, Hart's book, I don't, I don't tend to object to any of his arguments. It's just that concern around how like you're using this word that's become a swear word and people won't even hear you. Yeah. So I would be comfortable. Now I used to call myself a hopeful inclusivist, but then Hart says, well, your hope sounds wishful thinking ish. I'm like my hope. It's not wishful thinking. Jesus is right. my hope. Right. So, so I, I, I would say I'm not a universalist, but I believe in ultimate redemption. Right. And And like, well, then what's the difference? It's like, well, there wouldn't be a difference if we're talking what heart means but most people don't mean that most people are very that's pop universalism that is the standard default meaning now Uh, just doesn't apply to me
2: sure no i appreciate those distinctions maybe i've just confused it even more (laughs) no no, i actually appreciate this i I appreciate that answer very much yeah
1: yeah that's that's very insightful answer um i guess i I would have a couple questions by the way this is jamal it's great to have you back on the on the podcast hey jamal yeah um wow i, I think it's awesome that i mean, we, i don't know if you've ever had another a guest back on twice so you, this is historic <laughs> so you're here but i appreciate that distinction um I, I guess a question i would have for you is how would you distinguish jesus incarnation from the incarnation of humanity itself other other human beings and the second question would be how would what is your understanding of sin okay
3: so let's start with the incarnation of christ um i think that's unique in the sense that i'm with john the apostle that it's it's the eternal word became flesh that he didn't just adopt a human person but that god enters god enters the world in person and he takes on human flesh that, you know, I just don't see myself that way. I'm not, I'm not, I wasn't some pre-existent eternal God that showed up in this world. That said, um, I've been made in the image and likeness of God. And I believe that we will become by grace what Christ is by nature. That's, I'm just quoting the early church fathers there. And so our destiny would be to become like him. From glory to glory to glory, I'm going to be transfigured into his likeness. And I'm quite happy to confess that I don't look a lot like him yet, but I, I think that's, that's human destiny that God's calling mm-hmm. us to that. Sin, it seems to me, is turning from that kind of love into self will. So, um, if I could think about the, the story of the, garden of eden what's what's really the sin there and it seems to be to me that adam and eve were already like god and then it was suggested to them the temptation is well you're not really like god but you could be like god if you become independent of god and and in in Mm. turning in that turning away to self-will um the human condition really gets embedded as this tragedy and so then what's Repentance would be turning back to the care of a loving God who restores his image or restores the likeness. I think the image is still there. Restores the likeness through through a willing surrender to his love and care and, and a orientation towards love. So that's kind of how I think of my anthropology and my sin and my
1: return. Totally. That's r- super fascinating. I've always said, you know, one of my contentions has been, yeah, the, the, the root of the sin was when, you know, in the story there, when, when Adam and Eve were suggested that they could be like God. And I was like, wait, if they obviously didn't realize that they were already. And of course yeah. that then is the hook for looking outside of themselves for likeness and image. But, you know, so my understanding has always been repentance is turning back to like, Hey, you understand who you are you know, coming back to the essence of you. But it's super interesting. And the reason I asked the question about incarnation is just because, uh, and we've had, we've had another guest on the show. Um, You're probably familiar with uh, Father Richard Rohr. Who's got a book out um, with the universal or the universal Christ. And um, you know, the contention that, you know, a big part of that conversation has been that John won the word, you know, there are some understandings of, of that is that the incarnation actually was creation itself. And, and then of course, Jesus obviously isn't, is a, you know, we have that as a person um, that, uh, that Im, like that standard bearer, but actually um, Jesus is not different in the sense of uh, the incarnation happened the big bang is kind of his assertion is that that's when the incarnation actually happened so um i know that's a that's a bit of a I, i think i'd be curious to hear your take on um that perspective
3: you know sure um so i want to start out by saying i love father richard and i would regard him as a friend and i think he represents the image of christ in this world far far better than i hope to um and i really mean it the guy is just in effusion of divine love, actually. And so I went on the one chance I actually had time to really be with him face to face. I, I fell into his arms and received that beautiful hug that to me was, uh, love embodied in this guy. Uh, so I want to say that first and also that I'm a fan of his writing. Uh, and yet I would, I would have some disagreements about precisely the thing you brought up. And so where I disagree with him is Um, You know, he's doing some daring things and I'm not willing to dare them. Um, And so historically, um, I'm with the I'm with the ancient church that the the incarnation of Christ was absolutely unique because it was God himself coming, assuming human flesh. And and that that's the incarnation. Now you can oversteer into the other ditch by saying, and creation is, is just ex nihilo. You've got creator and created and it's out of nothing. It's like, no, I think Rora's partly right on this, that, that creation was out, out of the nature of God. And so in the early church, they would not say creation's an incarnation, but they did dare to say it's an appearance. And so we, we get an appearance of the nature of God through creation. Um, but the, the the word incarnation is is to be and fleshment, and so it's particularly around humanity, and, and that Christ becomes the true human. So i I see a big I see a big difference between creation and humanity, and then Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, to me, that's that probably it's a category error. I also suspect that he has an agenda for this that I would affirm, and that is. Somehow that include that that God is available to all and He's found in all, so and, that He fills all things and He's in all places. Uh, some call that panentheism, and I would say the early church was did a, a modified Christian panentheism. God is not creation, but in our prayers we say He is in all places and fills all things, and so in that sense, the, the world uh, through the world. God is revealed. That's Romans chapter two, and the heavens declare the glory of God. But there's something unique about the incarnation of Jesus Christ that I would hang on to. That, and I bet if you push Roar on it, you know he might go there too. But certainly, some of his disciples now have gone so far as to say, "Well, Jesus isn't, you know, doesn't even matter if he lived. I'm like, "Oh no, it matters completely." (laughs) So that's kind of where I'm at on it. Mm -hmm. Thank you for as best I can. I'm just in submission to the ancient.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: early church doctrine, like Athanasius and these guys mm-hmm.
2: and where I'm not, I would repent. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, you've had a, a pretty exciting year, Brad. Uh, you had two books come out this summer and I would love to uh, chat uh, with you about those. Um, you want to give the, the titles for the listeners and, and talk about maybe what you're trying to do in each of them. Sure. So one of them is a sequel to a more
3: Christ-like God that came out a few years back. And this one's called a more Christ-like way, a more beautiful faith. And that book is just about how, um, just as Christ showed us what it is to be divine, which I talk about in the first book, he Mm -hmm. also shows us what it is to be human. And Mm -hmm. he, and so I call this the Jesus way. And he says, you know, take up your cross and follow me on this way. So in that book, um, the, the more christ-like way i begin with a little bit about you know alternative metaphors to deconstruction that could be more healthy like let's say art restoration
0: mm. and then
3: i move into some four unchrist-like ways that have, been, have co-opted the church um that that have to do with like we've tried the way of moralism and that's killing us and we've, we've tried the way of you know partisan politics and we've tried the way of Left-right factions, and we've tried the way of nationalism. These are all unchrist-like counterfeits. And then I get into the heart of the book is seven facets of a more Christ-like way. And that's where I talk about radical self-giving, radical hospitality, radical unity, radical recovery, radical peacemaking, radical surrender, radical compassion. And, and these together are, are some of the facets of the Jesus way that he invites us onto. Not that I've arrived there, but that Christ forged that way. And, and as best we can, we're meant to, to go there with them. So that's that's the more Christ-like way book. Uh, the other book is called In, and the subtitle is Incarnation and Inclusion, Abba and Lamb. And in that book, I'm looking at this tension where you've got some people who see the uniqueness of Christ
0: mm-hmm.
3: as, as um, applied in exclusion. So the, the uniqueness for Christ implies to them that this in, out, us, them thing. And then on the other hand, you've got Christians, and uh, Christ followers who would say, well, no, I see that God is all inclusive and that he loves everybody. But then they're tempted to diminish the uniqueness of Christ. And, and what my book is proposing through scripture and through a lot of stories is how the higher my Christology has been, the wider I see the love of God to be. Mm-hmm. um that i haven't compromised on the incarnation at all and where that's led me is to see abba in everyone and so it's about letting people the good news is not that you could have god come and live in your life it's the good news is god does live in your life and let's take the blinders off so you can begin to experience the truth of who you are in the way of who you are and so that's kind of what i do with that book
2: yeah well going back to um I love the phrase art restoration project and because I mean, I I tend towards, I tend towards burning the whole thing down sometimes too and not know, and just like kind of standing on the rubble and not knowing what to do with it. And, um, but I think when, and that, that of course gets tied with the term deconstruction, I mean, yeah. And so I, I love that, uh, you kind of, I I'm guessing kind of, uh, answer, well now what, now, what do yeah. we do? And um, could you touch on that a little bit more for people who may, because uh, a lot of what we do on the podcast is helping folks through that deconstruction, if for lack of a better term, or art, art restoration projects. I mean, what are some of the things that, that you found that, that can be helpful in dealing with, uh, uh, I guess, a, a crisis of faith or something to that effect?
3: Yes. So when we're in a crisis of faith, um, when we use the term deconstruction as it's used currently, not how Derrida first meant sure, it as sure. a philosopher, but the way it's used currently, really is about well, I, I'm I'm going to use jackhammers and dynamite and blow the whole thing yeah. up. Like what? The question is, what is the thing? You know, do we burn the whole thing down? Well, sure. What do you mean by thing? Um, so, do we mean a religious system that's oppressed us? Okay, go at, have at it if you can. Probably can't anyway. But if we mean the the faith once delivered to the saints, the gospels, really, we're going to burn the gospel down. Is that wise? Or maybe even the thing is my faith, my heart. I'm like, no, your heart's a masterpiece and your faith is precious. Let's just be a little more careful here. So let's imagine then. So I use a bunch of metaphors, but the art restoration would be like this: that I see the gospel and I see your faith as a as a as a Rembrandt. And somehow through religious systems, this piece of art, this masterpiece, it's actually priceless. It's got, it's got, had grime on it. And then someone did touch-ups on it with bad paint. And then it went through, there was a smoke damage and all of this. All right. So am I really going to deconstruct that art? Like, what, should I bring scissors? Uh, should I? No, uh, we're going to make our our first aim, and this is a fairly conservative thing to say, I think we're going to conserve the masterpiece. And then we will, we will gently try to cleanse our faith of the toxins. And we're going to carefully look at the things we added to the gospel that really don't belong there. And a parallel in this would be the parable, the wheat and the weeds, or the wheat and the tares and 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 these people see that there's there's a problem. Oh no, the enemy's sown weeds in the night, and should we pull them up? And it's like careful, because uh, you don't want to be tearing the wheat out. Because what if the wheat is the gospel, or what if the wheat is your is your own faith journey? So, <laughs> I think. Well, honestly, I was trying to find as many ways of not saying "don't throw the baby out with the bathwater" as I possibly <laughs> yeah. could. But that's kind of what I was saying.
2: Yeah. No, that's definitely good stuff, and I and I think it's always helpful um, for folks like you to remind. I put myself there first because, again, like I said, I'm one to use dynamite, and <laughs> sometimes I need to be a little more careful and reminded that uh, this this once upon a time was a beautiful uh, painting.
3: <laughs> yeah, and also, it's not always in our hands, right? So, some people who go through what we call deconstruction, they didn't even do it on purpose. It's like life has done it to them. it's like, okay, let's, let's do the triage here and see who can survive this.
2: Sure. So, yeah, that's, that's good stuff. Um, I'm sure your books can be found on Amazon and everything, correct? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And, and do you have a, do you have a website where you're, where you're putting all that stuff out as well?
3: Um, people can find, people can find the books, um, through bradjursack.com. Um, but. Honestly, it's quickest just to go to Amazon and type my name and my books will come up and these will appear there. Yeah,
1: Fantastic. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. We really, really appreciate you, your generosity and your time and coming back on the podcast. It's just, uh, it is historic. I'm glad that you came back on for a second time and um, just appreciate the, uh, what your contribution to the wider conversation that we're, that we're having today.
3: It's my pleasure. It's always good to be with you guys. Awesome. Thanks, Brad. Brad. Thanks, Brad.
2: All right. Blessings on you. You too. Bye-bye.
0: Oh, yeah. Brad freaking Jurczak. He's the man. Love that guy.
2: Yeah. Yeah, he's the our first guest that came yeah, back.
0: I imagine that. We actually had someone that was willing to come back on.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: We well, did. Yeah. That is really cool. And it was, what, two years ago we had him on, I think.
2: It was. I can't believe it's, can you believe it's? Oh, it's no. been that long? No. It doesn't seem yeah. like that long. No.
1: It's cool. And I, I'm glad, I'm really glad we had him back on because there has been a lot of conversation, like we alluded to earlier. And, you know, I, I even asked him this in the interview, like um, Richard Rohr has come out. Richard Rohr is, you know, a huge fan of his work and I'm a huge fan of uh, Brad Jerzak's work, Jerzak, Jerzak's work because he's really, I, one of the things I love about Brad Jerzak is he really, from a Christian perspective, has dismantled this idea of a punitive God and, um, you know, this whole penal substitution oh, yeah. garbage. Thing. He's really, really taken it apart. I love that. Um, I think he does differ from Richard Rohr, and he's admitted to that. And um, but but the idea of Richard Rohr, the emphasis on the universal Christ, that everything is a first and foremost a uh, an incarnate an example of the incarnation, and uh, Jesus obviously you know, we're we're given the person of Jesus to as a as a statement of okay, he is an incarnate being, um, and then we look to him as a standard, but yet then Jesus' message to us is we are also all like him. I think that's where um Brad Jerzek would differ a little bit in that is in his claim that Jesus is some in, in an exclusive way, in a way that we're not God incarnate in human flesh. And that's where, and that's that's the traditional Christian understanding of the incarnation. And I think that's where he would differ from Richard. Where I definitely would, would I, you know, I love it because that's why I'm not actually, I would not be considered a Christian in that sense of the word. Word because I
0: think
1: I think the essence of Jesus' message is that we are like him. Jesus is not some exclusive deity, human being in a way that we're not, because um, then that would make him fundamentally different than us. And I think that's where I would. Differ.
2: Yeah, so. but you know the beautiful thing is that Brad and, and and Roar would would disagree and still like genuinely love each other. Oh yeah. Same with you, Jamal. Same with same with same with what we're trying to do here on the show. Yeah. And it's just so counter counter to what is the current culture, especially. And I'm going to make the perfect segue here when it comes to politics. Oh, there we it just is. cannot. Woo! We just can't take that approach. Like even as Christians, like we get so bent out of shape and it just, we break up relationships because of yep. it. And we get, you know, just because of a disagreement and politics, this is the one that I was looking at. Like when we do the politics one, it might be one of our most contentious, not with each other, just because for some reason, politics just sends people over the edge, man. More than theology, I think.
0: Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. uh, they're very similar, right? I mean, um, and obviously, sure, th- of course. this topic this topic is something I wrote a book about. In fact, my very first book with Choir uh, was "Jesus Untangled: Crucifying Our Politics to Pledge of Allegiance to the Lamb," and uh, and so yeah, this was something that two years ago, when I wrote this book, uh, that book, um, I, I thought, man, this is, it, it had reached such at that point two years ago. The division between Christians and even just the division in in America in general over issues of politics was was so divisive and so toxic. Uh, that's why I wrote Jesus untangled. And now two years later, it, oh my gosh, it's like 10 times worse. Uh, so, um, yeah, it, this is a big, it, it is an important topic. Um, and it's one that I, I'm curious to see how you, uh, how like I'm going to, you know, how would the three of us are going to, uh, fall on this? Cause I, I'm guessing the three of us are going to be pretty, pretty different in our perspectives on this, but, um, yeah, uh, definitely something we have to talk about. So.
2: Politics, yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> and it, but it, but it's cool that we're, that we're going to differ. Like it doesn't. Oh
0: no, of course.
2: I don't know. I, I think this is this is where this is where I think people just like like lose sight. Like it. We're to a point where if you're not exactly lined up with us on like ten, fifteen views, maybe less for some people, then it's like we just cut off everything. And and you're you're like, and we've gotten so dualistic that if you're on the left and you're not quite as left, then you're like far right. And if you're on the right and you're a little bit more liberal, then you're some sort of uh, crazy neo-progressive. And and we just, it's so bizarre to me, yeah. but it's so telling of our time. And for me, it doesn't matter where we fall on the map. Like, yeah, you have your views. I have mine. Jamal has his. Ralph's got his. The listeners have theirs. Yeah. But that's, that's okay. But I mean, I am curious. I am curious. I, I got to be honest, like, I'm not exactly sure where you guys fall.
0: <laughs> well, so should we? Uh, I mean, just to kind of get us started, and then I I'd, let's go around. Maybe let's do like a little round robin here, and uh, and maybe we'll, uh, okay. take, take some time. Maybe we'll just take a little bit of time to give our views on the on the topic of politics. But you know, in America, we are living in a time when um, to be a, to be a Christian, it's a, it's a just assumed, especially if you are a Republican conservative. Um, the assumption is, well, that's all you can be if you're a Christian, because you can't possibly be a Christian uh, and vote Democrat. Um, and there's a whole lot of reasons for that. That's not an accident that that's happened. That's actually the result of many years, many decades of intentional, um, you know, planning to to sort of polarize the, the church, the Christian church, the, onto the, the family side of politics. Well, yeah, exactly. Uh, that uh, yeah. documentary on Netflix, "The Family," which. I haven't seen it yet, but my gosh, so many people, so many of my friends have said, Keith, I watched the family and I kept thinking about, you've got to watch this, Keith. It's because it's like, it's it's really just reinforcing all the stuff I was writing about in Jesus Untangled, which is this, um, you know, there, there there's a very purposeful, intentional, and I don't want to sound like a conspiracy because it's not a conspiracy. It's, I mean, it's documented, very well documented, um, that uh, Christian leaders and business leaders, corporate leaders Uh, came together uh, like around, I think around the fifties and um, started to say, how can we uh, get Christians to line up behind these sort of conservative values that support corporate interests? Uh, They, they, uh, you know, had several high profile Christian pastors of mega churches, uh, many of them in Los Angeles, but also in the Midwest and the East coast who jumped on board with this and made it their mission to um, you know, do all that they could do to, to make that happen. So that was in the fifties, and there was a wave. That's where we came up with this whole. That's when we had this whole in God We Trust" and "One Nation Under God" and all that kind of stuff put into uh, our national language. Um, but it's then you know we've, we've had successive waves of this kind of a thing with this entanglement of Christianity and conservative politics. So we saw it again um, with the Moral Majority and Jerry Falwell. Um, and uh, you know, coming together to to elect Ronald Reagan in two terms. Uh, but of course, that was a major ripoff that you know, Christians realized when it was all said and done that actually the church did a whole lot for Reagan, and Reagan did not do a thing. All of his promises he made to the Christian church, he promised uh, he would overturn Roe versus Wade, didn't even attempt to do that. And he promised he would put prayer back in schools, and again, never even made any attempts to do that. So, he got what he wanted which is typically the way it happens when you mix faith and politics you get politics um you don't uh, <laughs> you don't get anything uh anything that really resembles anything like uh you know Christ or anything Christ like so uh anyway that's where we are today and of course now we're we're seeing it again where this being poured on with Trump and uh but again it's this oxymoron right that it's not true you certainly can be a follower of Christ and um, have progressive or uh, liberal views and vote for progressive or liberal candidates. Like your, your, your faith, your Christian faith, um, isn't automatically going to steer you one way or the other. So that's one, that's one false, false assumption.
2: Yeah. Jamal, what, uh, where, where are you at with all this? <laughs> I don't think we've ever talked politics. No, man. We have.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, um, now don't hate me, guys. I'm just kidding. I'm not, I was gonna We're say not was gonna
0: Trump
1: okay. I'm not a I'm not a Trump supporter. Um I will just say that. Margaret, I, Margaret 2020, right? I don't I don't support the re-election of Donald Trump. And I did not support his original election, <laughs> just to be clear. However, uh let me I just kind of give you a nutshell where I come from, because I've been all over the board with this issue. Um I can't I, I went to Liberty University, which is you know, uh, it, it, yes, you did. Uh, that is where Jerry Falwell. <laughs> that's the school Jerry yeah. Falwell founded. And if you know anything about modern, you know, American history, that Jerry Falwell is responsible for creating the Moral Majority. Really, nineteen seventy nine, nineteen eighty, kind of galvanized support. Ronald Reagan was the candidate of choice, and that that really started this whole thing in in many ways. I mean, the family kind of goes into it. There, it was going on before that, but really, Jerry Falwell really ma- like mass uh, organized the Christian evangelical base to support Republican politics. So um, I, I was in all that when I went to Liberty University and definitely got caught up in all that. Was I've always been passionate about politics, even as a little kid, uh, before I was even, quote unquote, an evangelical qu- Christian. I was always fascinated by, the, by politics, by how it works. Um, I don't know why, I just always have. I, my dad and I would have political conversations. My dad has a you know, perspective from someone who lived on the other side of the world, and you know, had a view of America that you know I didn't hear very often. So I was always fascinated by that. When we would talk and go back and forth and stuff, and so, um, but as a Christian, as an evangelical Christian, I drank the Kool Aid, became a Republican, you know, supporter, and you know, I campaigned. Like I would actually go to campaign rallies. For <laughs> uh, I remember going to one for Bob Dole, showing my age a little bit. Bob Dole when um, he's running against Bill yeah. Clinton, I thought Bill Clinton was a an evil guy, and. I, definitely campaigned for George W. Bush and just huge, huge into all that. Um, And then I had a personal awakening uh, on a political level. I actually had a personal awakening when uh, Barack Obama was president. And I have a whole story about all of that. I could get into but that's a whole different subject. And I began to really value him as a human being, not even his politics, but just as a person. And that was a real change for me because I was such a partisan. Anyway, I came to the conclusion though, because of the abuses of the religious right I was just like, you know what, Christians should have nothing to do with politics. And that's kind of where I landed for a while. Um, Jesus, I would, you know, Jesus said, "Beware of the leaven of Herod and the Pharisees." And I would that passage. I'd be like, you know, there's they're corrupt. You know, if you look through history, you know, uh, the the religious leaders and politicians always conspire together to control the masses. And I believe that that's that's very 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 much part of our history. So I just wrote off politics altogether, like it has no place for for Christians. But then I left Christianity. <laughs> I started to realize that, gee, oh wait, Jesus didn't even have any, like Christianity has nothing to do with Jesus. Jesus didn't even come to start another religion. So the the problem with politics is that it gets in, it gets in bed with folks who are promoting um, a tribe, a nation state, so to speak. So it's all about, you know, the, you know, the, the, the religious li- the nationalism and then the, the, you know, you know, people want to hijack nationalism, the country to promote their brand of their religion. And that's where it gets very corrupt. Um, but I have sense of how to reawakening to the realm of politics for me personally. And the reason for that is because th- there's nothing inherently. And I just started to see like why we're dualism is always around the corner. When we start making something secular and something sacred, then we've missed the boat again. Now we're saying okay, this is a no go zone. It used to be you know, certain music is a no go zone. Or I, I just don't believe there's no go zones in the world anymore. Like every profession you know, is for the most part something, if you feel called to, um, to, to do your work in that profession, there's nothing wrong with that inherently. So is politics a no go zone? No, I think politics is, is great. Um, I just, but that, it doesn't mean, you know, it's not, if, if you're not promoting a specific religion or nation state, I actually think politics can be redeemed because, because when you turn your faucet on and water comes out, that's politics. And when you drive down the road, that's politics because somebody had to make that road. Somebody had to, you know, set up the, the infrastructure so that you have water lines coming in your house so you have drinking water, um, you know, uh, police force laws, traffic lights. All of these are all these things are politics and you have it at a local level and you have at a national level. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But I think if you're if you're deconstructed away from the agendas of promoting a tribe, a religious sect like Christianity, which I don't even think Jesus came to start. Um, or if you 're not if you 're not trying to build a nation state to control the masses, then politics can be a beautiful tool of human development and I actually think it can be and I think the, there's there 's a real place for people who are awakening to the essence of who we are there 's a role in politics for those folks otherwise that 's you know the the people who are unenlightened are now running the, the show and it 's affecting all of our lives so i I do think people should get involved in the political process. If they're not motivated by, you know, promoting their tribe, Christianity, or promoting their nation state in a nationalistic sense of the way, but if you're into human development, politics could be a great field. I'm definitely passionate about that.
2: So, in other words, you're voting for Trump in 2020. Actually, actually, I'll tell you,
1: I'm I'm a, I'm a passionate supporter of Marianne Williamson who's running for the Democratic nomination. I really believe uh, in her message. um, Not that I think she's a savior and going to save us all. And, you know, I'm not outsourcing my hope to some politician, but I just think that it's a, she's a healthy candidate and there's other others out there. Again, I'm not saying everyone should vote for her. I'm just saying that's the person I am very excited about her candidacy. But, um, but I I just, I'm, I'm passionate about people getting involved when it's not motivated by tribe or nationalism, but human development think it's it's beautiful you know
2: yeah well yeah i i tend i tend towards some a pretty anarchist leanings um I, I you know like like you all i grew up conservative and was told that to be a christian you pretty much have to not you have to be a republican but you have to be on that team um i don't i don't think the people who i was around went that far but that was definitely the slant. And then I got really libertarian and, um, yeah, just thinking that the state just in its very existence breeds corruption and it's like predicated on power and coercion. And I just, I just really can't get on board with that. I mean, that's historically seems true. And like Jamal, you said, religious leaders and state leaders always get in bed with each other and, and always fuck the people over. I mean, that's, that's just what it is. And, but I, but I, but I try to be pragmatic at this point. Um, so in California, marijuana is legal, but if it weren't, I would certainly vote to legalize it because yeah, I, yeah, I know. I know when you vote, you, you kind of like endorse the system, but at, at some point I think of the state as like heroin, like we're all heroin addicts. We can't just go cold Turkey. Right. So every now and then you need you need something. (laughs) Otherwise, you're going to you're going to everything's going to spiral out of control. So that's how I see voting as, you know, it's like we're all a bunch of heroin addicts. We endorse it. I mean, so if if I have a chance to have people who are locked up for marijuana or something because weed's illegal to have them released and I have a vote on that, let's say I would certainly do that, even though. It's sort of an endorsement of the whole system, but.
1: Well, I, the system is, you know, I look at it like anything, like it's a tool. it It's not good or inherently good or bad. It's like money. It's like, it's just a tool. It, it can be whatever sure. you want it to be. But I think that the, the issue can be. So for example, when human beings gather together, there is a principle. Like you get, there's a lot of power when collective folks organize, you can organize and change things. It's the only reason we had a civil rights movement. You know, uh, even you think about um, um, gay marriage. Like, why did that even change? It's because there was a galvanation of people uh, to gather mm-hmm. and address an uh, an issue in our society that needs to be addressed. That's politics. That's fun to me. That's that is fundamentally the political process. And if it's, again, if you're motivated by human development, we have tremendous resources, especially in this country. We have tremendous resources to solve so many of the world's problems, but because we have such a select group of people who do not represent human betterment and human development, we have corporate interests that are after literally that are, their bottom line is, is, is corporate gain that there is, there, they are sucking the energy and the resources and the focus away from human development, and it's all about profits. And that's that's an example. And the only reason that happens is because people have not gotten involved. I believe a large majority of people have checked themselves out of the process because it is corrupt. But the only way, only reason, only way it will change, is if people bring another level of consciousness. And, you know, I I can't remember who said it, maybe it was Albert Einstein. It says, you're not going to solve a problem with the same level of consciousness that created the problem. So this is why I think if people are awakening, um, waking up to higher levels of being and consciousness and coming out of tribalism and, you know, separation and sectarianism and nationalism, those are the people that should be getting involved. And fixing, because we're, we're supposed to build a new planet. You know, the whole thing is Jesus says, you know, let your will be done. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on the earth. Not like later some Like right now, let let that be done now as it is in heaven in this other realm. And so how does that happen? It happens by getting involved in every aspect of society. And politics would just be one of those. But
0: that's just my opinion. So, I, I, I mean, I, that sounds good, Jamal. And um, I mean, I guess I just have such a pessimistic view of politics in general. I mean, sort of like, I agree with you, like, well, if we just take tribalism and uh, power politics out of politics, then um, that, then it would be a beautiful thing. I was like, well, if anyone ever could, but no one ever has. And uh, it's sort of like saying like, you know, you take, I think there's a Will Rogers quote. He says, if you ever took, um, uh, if you ever injected truth into politics, politic, you would never, ha- you wouldn't have politics because like, you know, that that's what makes politics tick is, uh, people are always lying to get their way and manipulating each other, and there is this tribalistic, uh, you know, us and them kind of a thing. And, and I and I don't know that it's avoidable. But I also want to say, like, again, my my pessimism is based on, again, when I was researching Jesus Untangled, I came across this study about how um, Princeton University took 20 years worth of data to answer a single question: Does the U.S. government represent the people? And what they found was that um, it made absolutely no difference whether the American people supported or even wanted legislation on a particular issue or not. The government did whatever they wanted, regardless of the level of popular support for that issue. So in other words, it made absolutely no difference whether people wanted something or didn't want something that had no impact on whether or not Congress would pass uh, or not pass something. But here's the thing, though. There, there was a group that absolutely did influence. So not not people, not you and me, uh, but there was a group that abso- absolutely influenced um, decisions made by the government. And those were multi-billion-dollar corporations who spent, uh, you know, billions of dollars on lobbying, and and then made trillions of dollars in profits as a result. So um, that that those group of people, um, if they wanted something to happen there was like a 90% chance it was going to pass because they were the ones spending the money and doing the lobbying and uh, making basically buying the legislation that they wanted to happen. So, But the infuriating thing is this, um, those billion dollar corporations who are basically influencing the government uh, the way they want it to, to, to work, um, they have the biggest voice and they pay almost no taxes. Like Amazon made billions of dollars of profits, did not pay a single dime not even a penny in taxes this past year, and and they're not the only ones, right? All these, all the billionaire corporations, billion dollar corporations, um, have the most influence in the government, paid none of the taxes, but we're the ones paying the taxes, and we don't have representation. So I am, I believe that we no longer have a government by the people, for the people, and of the people. And so because of that, essentially your vote does not count. I mean, uh, that's why I don't vote anymore. I just re- I see it as either. Participating in a very tribalistic, um, divisive political system, and and it's also going through the motions because at the end of the day, it, it really won't change um, fundamental things I uh, yes. love Now, but, but you know, like you made you you said something Jamal about like um, you know slavery or like uh, Martin Luther King uh, and those kind of movements, and I agree with you. Um, but see, but those kinds of movements are largely led by people, um uh, like Martin Luther King's a great example. This is a a Baptist pastor who organized everyday ordinary people, um, both black and white, but many of them, based on their Christian conviction, to stand up for justice. Now, see, to me, I would draw a line between justice and politics. Now, what they what people um, being involved in justice issues, did was eventually, yes, they were able to sway, they swayed the arm of politics, but they did not use politics to create the change. And I think actually, if you study history, not just even American history, history in general, politicians are not the people who create positive change for human beings on the planet. Um, People do. And people can do that apart from involvement in politics. In fact, it's not their direct involvement in politics that creates the change. It's their social change. In other words, it's the conversations they have uh, in their living rooms, or, fa- or you know, in groups of people, or organizing other people, or educating other people. Even the LGBTQ issue was again largely because of um, many years of helping change people's perceptions and understandings, yeah. and that happened outside of any voting this way or voting that way. That was that was a well, movement, it was a groundswell movement.
1: Yeah, can I say something? But I, I agree with that. I, I totally agree. I think change always begins with consciousness of people. I don't think the office creates change, the political offices create change. But I, I don't think you can separate the two because in the civil rights movement in the 1960s, there was an evolution in American consciousness towards race relations, and it was swelling across the land. And the aim of that evolution in consciousness was to influence our politics that our politics reflect, I believe, I firmly believe. And I, I, give, I give you another example of this. I have a friend who is a financial consultant, and he uh, he advises people on their on their finances, and he helps people manage their their money and invest and all these kind of things. And he's really really good at it. Um, he's like a vice president of investments, and you know he. But one of the things he asks them when he has people come to them, whether it's a you know whether it's a company or whether it's an individual. And, um, they have like a massive amount of wealth that they want to invest. He, he says, then they want to know, okay, where should I go? What's the smart investments? Where should I put my money and all this? And he says, no, no, no. Before we even get into that, like, tell me who you are as a person. Tell me what your values are. What makes your heartbeat? What, what gets you up in the morning? And he, and they're like kind of taken back by that. Cause he's like, well, what are you talking about? He's like, well, like, what do you value in life? And then they get into things like their family and, you know, whatever they're passionate about. And he goes, okay first and foremost your money should reflect your what you're passionate about your money should go where your heart is obviously it's a principle there where your treasures there your heart will be also okay so it's a powerful principle of the new world that we're building jesus talked about this this new kingdom okay so i firmly believe that politics which is spending our money as a, as a as a nation as a group of people should reflect our values where our money goes nationally should reflect the values of the people so people have a we have a right to say, okay, I am tired of taxpayer money going to represent $700 million war machine. That's wreaking havoc on the planet. That's not why it's not where it's not our values. No human if you if you, you pull people, nobody would agree with that. So we want we we need to organize in such a way that we say, okay, yeah, the politics should represent us. It shouldn't represent just corporate interest or small groups of people that are, you know, running running uh, heinous institutions that are you know, destroying people's lives. You know, no, we don't support uh, big pharma. No, we don't support Like majority of people, if you talk to them, they're totally, they'd be appalled at this stuff. Yet that's where their money's going. And I just think that, that they're, you know, just like the civil rights movement in the 1960s and these other, these other movements, we want to influence political or public policy to reflect the will of the people. That's why the whole gay marriage thing was such a big deal, because the majority of Americans had had grown in this issue. Their evol- their thinking had evolved. And now our politics, our laws were archaic. Our laws were represented that were, were, were indicating uh, a place where we didn't, we didn't, there was an alignment. There was not an energetic alignment with the the value system of the people. And I just think that one has to represent the other. And if we're going to create a new planet, we can't just, because again, what's the solution? If we just check out and say, okay, well, politics is, it's corrupt. There's nothing, it can never be changed. Then then we're just left with like doing our well, own thing. But I don't, I and, mean, I
0: agree with you on that part, Jamal, but see, and, and this is where we're, maybe we're, we would sl- take slightly different um, perspectives on, on what that looks like. Because for me, when I, when I say, okay, I reject politics as a means, as, as a way to to affect any real change in the world, and I, and I that's where I'm at. I just don't believe that politics is really going to affect any kind of change, positive change in the world we live in. But I do put my hope in in Christ and in, in the message of uh, what what you know, the Sermon on the Mount. Like I really do believe that um, that the transformative message. Uh, of Christ that the, the good news of the kingdom It's something that transforms us as individuals as people it makes us people that aren't self-centered it makes us people that do uh, you know love our enemy love our neighbors ourselves uh put others first and all these kinds of things and so I think once we begin to undergo that transformation and then we begin to help others undergo that transformation again it's a it's a one-to-one personal direct movement um that one person at a time affects the chain. In other words, we're affecting the changes in the hearts and the minds of human beings around us. And then once people around us have changed, then frankly laws in some ways become irrelevant because whether there's a law that says you shouldn't, you know, rape goats or not doesn't matter because you, you live in a society of people that don't want to rape goats or whatever. You know what I'm saying? So it's sort of like, um, or the law should say, no, everyone needs to rape a goat. Well, I'm not going to because that's not who I am. So in other words, like if you, if we, if we can influence, um, positively changing hearts and minds of people around us, uh, then, then that's the way Mm -hmm. we change the world. That's the way, and that's a lasting change that has nothing to do with what the laws say. Um, because again, laws are irrelevant. If, if people themselves have fundamentally changed to become, um, like Christ.
2: Yeah. But I mean, I mean, to play devil's advocate, (laughs) I mean, ideally speaking, yes, you're absolutely right, Keith. It, if we're all living uh, in our true essence, uh, living without our ego and all these things, and 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 living a an enlightened life in the kingdom of God, yeah, laws what once they're meaningless. I mean, they could be they could say whatever they want to say, but I do I do. The right things because they're right. the right thing, not because the law tells me. But in the meantime, I mean, certainly we need some sort of we're not there like, yet. No, we're not. Right. There yet. We need we need we need some guide. we need some guides. I mean, couldn't couldn't you still engage in the political process in order to put um, guardrails up against
0: murder? Yeah, well, no, again, I would. I would say I could if my vote meant anything, if my vote was anything other than something that I'm going through the motions and it made me feel good. And I got that sticker that says I voted. Look at me. But at the end of the day, uh, the people that I voted for don't work for me and are not going to pass laws that have anything to do with what the will of the people really is. So for me, again, this is just for me, I, I feel like, again, all well, this other thing about, you know, uh, the gospel and transforming people to be like right well that's such a long slow process yeah it is um it may take a while but i think it's something that's worth doing i think it's on i think it's ongoing it's not like we're starting on day one and that this has been an ongoing process um and, and so again I, I feel like there that has more hope I, I i see more hope for for humanity in that than i do in in politics
1: yeah you know i and i i do there's funny you know it's like car, it's like used car salesman you know they have a bad rap like for a reason but we all buy cars so you know it's it, it's not like it's 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 inherently like if you were a used car salesman you're now suddenly you know involved in it you know in an unredeemable profession it's the same thing with politics it's like there are people i know people who feel very passionate and i would say their work in the world i, I my, my, my my personal belief is that all people are here On purpose, and that we all have a role to play and a job to do on the earth, like, or jobs to do on the earth, or it's our work in the world. And again, that's what my book, Living for Living, was about. Like, when you're not living for survival, you're actually here, you're living to advance love. You're advancing, and that's whatever it corresponds to our passions and callings in our life. Once you get to know who you are, get to know yourself, you get to move into that. And there are people that get into education because of that. There are people who get into, um You know, humanitarian work um, there's people that get into all kinds of things, engineering, and I also think politics can be another profession for people uh, that want to make a difference in the world to get into again it's not the again it 's the consciousness you bring to something that matters, and I think if you had enough people, if we have an evolution in consciousness and people start to wake up to this new what the world could be. And those are the folks that are going to be making decisions. And again, I don't look at politics as all about making laws that prohibit people from doing things. That's one way to look at it. But politics can also be people who, I mean, we have enough resources to solve most of the world's problems just here in this country. We have, there's enough money to solve. I mean, it's a consciousness issue, you know, again, but it, the folks that who are, there are people now that are, uh, that are waking up, that are realizing we could actually shift um, large amounts of resources to solving the world's most pressing problems, but again, you're, that's not going to happen if only, the only people who get, you know, get involved in the political process are people who are fear-driven or power-driven, and, and I, I don't think it changes. And I think we're here to fundamentally change the world. So I- again, all all aspects of society. I'm not just talking politics. Is you know, I don't want to make the Christian right. W- w- the problem with the Christian right is that they, um, you know, they what they ended up doing is, is putting all their hope and power in politics to advance the cause of their religion, of their right. tribe. And yes. it had nothing to do with human development and human betterment, um, and making the world a better place. Actually, they're at the same time, they're talking about rapture and escaping the world and the world's going to hell. And so it didn't make any sense. Like again, it was all about power and control and their lust for power. Right. But I'm not talking about it like that. And I'm not talking about like finding a messiah, someone who will get elected to to an office and now the world's going to be saved. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about people who are invested in making this world and our society run according to the values that we have. And I think that's where the political product process can be beneficial it doesn't have to be a no-go zone because if that's the case then we're back to dualism where this is sacred and this is secular and politics is a no-go zone and spiritual people stay away from that and a lot of people have done that i think it's a mistake
2: yeah so um we're going to carry this conversation on because we got to wrap up this show but guess what you lovely listeners are in luck because we're going to carry on the conversation over at patreon and if you just sign up, it's like two bucks a month. Right. Am I right on that? $2 a month. Yeah. You get bonus. You get bonus content. Patreon.com slash Heretic happy hour. Uh, we'll, we'll keep this thing rolling for another 10, 15 minutes. So make sure you join our Patreon site, bookmark our website, heretichappyhour.com. And yeah, this has been a good one.
0: Yeah. And if you also want to continue uh, the conversation on our Facebook group, there is a Heretic happy hour Facebook group for our Patreon supporters. Uh, so support us on Patreon. And if you do, you can jump on over there and join that conversation. We also um, help support an, uh, more of an open group called Heresy After Hours, which is more of a free-for-all deconstruction sort of conversation about many types of deconstruction topics. Um, and you don't need to be a Patreon supporter to join that group. Um, so one place or the other or both, we will hope to see you there on Facebook.
1: And I think I think now we're on iTunes. Is that right?
0: Uh, I, had, I, I think we just got, got just, just just happened
1: something. yeah two years so cool and we have some reviews on there but we we need uh it, it would really be helpful if uh, the listeners would re- rate and review us on iTunes now that we're here so just everybody right now go and do that real quick
0: five
1: yeah. stars it's the least
2: you could do
0: come on yes. <laughs>